This is SOMCAST, a wine podcast created by the BC Chapter of the Canadian Association of Professional Sommeliers. We're committed to bringing you great conversations from wine professionals around British Columbia. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Today, I'm joined by Peter Vanderreep, 2020's best sommelier of BC and the current sommelier at an exquisite wine bar in Vancouver called Bar Gobo. Now, for anyone that knows Peter, you know his mastery in every level of hospitality, from bartending to coffee to beer and to wine. Today, we're talking his story, how he got to be where he is now, all the different nuances and the moves around his career, and then what he's taking on right now with Bar Gobo. So enjoy the conversation. This is, uh, this is like a year and a half into your reign as the best sommelier of BC. So the longest, longest standing standing recipient or the earner of that title eh? yeah i mean circumstances beyond anyone's control there Uh, but yeah (laughs) but yes yeah it's been it's been an interesting year and a half for sure no kidding yeah opening a new restaurant and uh trying to figure out how to how to run a little wine bar in chinatown in vancouver but uh yeah things are good it's been a little while Awesome. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'd love to, I can't wait to dive into that. Um, just some discovery about what it's been like to open that place up and how you make the selections and the, the way that the food and the whole program works. Cause I've been there a couple of times. It's awesome. But uh, I think I'm really, really fortunate. I think to be able to, uh, to have this conversation with you that might go back a few years because I remember, I mean, our relationship goes back to me stopping by Elysian coffee doing my own studying for wine at the time and you were the one that was there that was reliably serving me some amazing coffee to keep me going for those times and the career since then Peter has just been like an unbelievable (laughs) foray into all the different components of hospitality and beverage like you have such a rare uh, a rare collection of experiences all at the highest level and would love to just get back to the origin and uh, the origins sure yeah the the found the foundation or the the bedrock I think might be might be a good way to say that sure well yeah it's been you know I've spent now in Vancouver sixteen years in in some form of hospitality and yeah originally it was coffee um, I moved here for university in two thousand five and worked. Uh, I think it was my first within twelve hours of landing in Vancouver. I had a job at uh, Wicked Cafe back on. Uh, it's still there on Hemlock and Seventh. Several different owners since then, but they were the first, the first cafe to bring in Intelligentsia coffee. Mm. Um, or sorry, they were distributing it. They weren't the first. Uh, Artigiano brought that in before. But uh, yeah, I worked as a barista on the weekends while, while going to school and uh, worked there for three years um, under some, uh, Arthur Wynn was the manager there, uh, a pretty famous bartender locally, um, who now lives back in his homeland of Australia. He kind of introduced me to some, some good cocktails always had an interest in in beverage at a, at a high at a high level I've always ever since I was I don't know 14 or 15 really was interested in the best tasting you know, the best tasting coffee or like you have a cup of tea at home but 
what there must be better tea out there what what tastes better what what's good what how, how do you uh, think that came about just a, a whim one that's, day i don't know i think it was probably you know as a kid going to a like um you go to a convenience store and you're like or you taste you you know you have a your first coffee and it's whatever it might be an instant coffee or a Folgers I don't remember what what I would have had um as a kid and or you go to the gas station or the 7-Eleven and you have a cup of coffee and you go oh that's really bitter like uh gross what is this and then at some point you have you know for me I think it was it was a Starbucks when they still had manual machines in the in the late 90s and you go ah what is, what is this espresso thing or what is a what is a cappuccino and, and you have and you're like whoa that's actually good i like this so you're like well that tasted good what's what's better like is there something better than this and so you start like looking and you're like you just realize that you really like good tasting things which is kind of like a fundamental like at the core what i what has driven my career and a lot of what my um what i what i like to do what i like to seek out variety and and finding the best of things awesome but yeah meanwhile you were going to school or you the primary reason for coming to vancouver from calgary right was was for school yeah i had a couple of years in victoria for school and then yeah yeah vancouver was school yeah yeah but also you know, when looking at schools to go to, I had to consider where might be good, you know, the quality of living. And for me, I was, I was really interested in coffee, but hadn't really worked in it. Um, and Vancouver at that point had by far the best coffee scene in, in the country um, followed. I mean, well, that might be a controversial statement, but for me, it was the, it was the pinnacle you had you know, early years of Elysian Coffee, Cafe Artigiano, and, and where I ended up working at Wicked, among others. But that was some early, early good cafes back in the day. But yeah, ended up graduating from UBC, wanted to stick around Vancouver for a bit longer, and uh, had a lease on an apartment and needed needed a job to pay for that lease after I I, my job at UBC, uh, after I graduated, I, I worked as a researcher briefly and uh, the funding ran out uh, prematurely. So I had to find a, a gig in uh, researching. Uh, I was, I was working for the, at the Department of Earth Sciences, which my degree is in. Um, I was managing an experimental uh, structural geology laboratory um kind of running experiments for a couple of professors and they didn't calculate the grant funding properly so i was out of a job a couple months before my lease was up i was going to move back to calgary hmm. and uh decided to stick around for the olympics um, because it seemed like a fun thing to do at the time so i got a job as uh, as a barista again at uh, at elysian coffee and then I haven't left hospitality since. Mm. So used some connections, called up Alistair at uh, Elysian. They were looking for 
for a, well, for a dishwasher. And I said, I can do that. <laughs> and uh, that was enough to pay the rent at the time. And uh, yeah, I just really fell in love with the more, you know, I guess, day-to-day aspects of hospitality and building up a regular clientele and, and then fine-tuning, you know, the technical aspects of, of beverage service, I guess, which is the most nerdy way to say serve coffee. But, um, what did you yeah, discover that's... in that? I, lo- I love how you said that, that there's a technical piece to it. There's a lot of pride, I think, in my opinion, that comes along with being able to serve at that level and know where the nuances of the service are. What's an example of that for, for coffee that you were, you know, that, that, you know, your customers may not have known about, but meanwhile, it was very exacting to you. Was there anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Coffee is really the way baristas work and the tools that are available to baristas now we're all kind of being figured out on the fly uh, 10, 12 years ago, where you're, you're looking at, you know, how to use grinders to your best advantage or how, um, how, how to, you know, for making espresso, temperature control was just becoming a thing. So knowing how to, how, changing the temperature of your machine's boiler affects the coffee not just for flavor but flow rates and extraction levels but this was before a lot of systems had been kind of figured out by people who who were even more technical than i was you know so we were just feeling it out back then so a lot of it was done on taste so we were drinking a lot of espresso every day all the time just trying to figure things out um but always tweaking trying to dial in the coffee constantly i don't know if it was quite as exact but now you see guys with formulas and calculators to figure out perfect extraction but a lot of what we were doing was trying to do it by taste and then work it back be like oh how much weight of coffee did we use per per dose how much wet you know how much coffee did you extract out of that dry amount of coffee? Um, I mean, this is all, it's like ancient, ancient barista history mm. at this point. Wow. Wow. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of things we were thinking about. There was a bit of a different world too. We were, I don't know if service was quite up to scratch back then in terms of hospitality. I think there's been a shift in the last five, six years where you see coffee shops now focusing, focusing much more on service and making their, their customers feel better. And I, I, I might have been part of a generation that was trying to differentiate ourselves from Starbucks. And uh, we might have been more than occasionally the surly, stereotypical baristas of Portlandia or, or whatever. Yeah, we learned, we learned. You take yourself to the edge only so you can draw it back and find the balance, perhaps. And you're a part of that. You gotta, gotta know the extremes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. What was the transition <laughs> then like from the coffee or what, what was the, the thought process and the choice to, to enter into restaurants? Cause I, if I remember right, Peter, it started with the kitchen. Yeah, there was, there was an aspect there for a while where I was playing a lot at home after, after shifts cooking and, uh, I really, really love food and food of all, all kinds. And 
started a, a small cookbook collection and uh, started hanging out at restaurants, uh, particularly um, Refuel back this in Vancouver. That was it closed almost 10 years ago now, but they had a kitchen bar that you could sit at and uh, watch the cooks do service for, for a whole restaurant. And uh, if you went on the slower nights, the cooks would just be hanging out with you and they, they give you all kinds of tips, you know, and people from that restaurant have gone on to open up all kinds of, or work at all kinds of fantastic uh, places in Vancouver now, but I would sit there at the kitchen bar and chat, chat about cooking and food and uh, drink some beer or cocktails or whatnot. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe that was something I should consider moving into restaurants. It seemed like there was a bigger, you know, more of a chance to make a career of it than, than coffee. Coffee kind of felt like it was maybe a little, you know, unless I were to own my own cafe, I didn't really know if there was going to be upward movement in the industry in Vancouver career-wise. So uh, it was actually, I don't know if it was me making the decision. I tend to be a little slow to make some of those, those big career decisions. But uh, Alistair uh, Dury, the owner of the Legion, kind of took me aside one day. I had been working for them for two, almost two and a half years, I think. And he goes, Peter, all you think about is food and what restaurant you're going to eat at and what you're going to cook that day or what new cookbook you're going to buy. Why don't you just go work in a restaurant? And <laughs> I kind of thought about it. You know, yeah, what, what is stopping me really? Um, other than perhaps, uh, you know, a tie to like, oh, should I really be going back to Calgary and working as a geologist? And so, uh, so I thought about it a little more and asked my, uh, my, asked the chef, now my, my friends at Refuel, I was like, hey, would you ever take me in? I have zero experience in a kitchen, but if I wanted to help you out for service and do a stage one day, would you be interested in that? And uh, and they were like, oh yeah, we need the help. Like, please, yeah, come on, hang out with us. And so I showed up on, on my days off and for the whole month, it was the last month that they were open. I, I think almost every one of my days off, I'd go and hang out and work in the kitchen for 12 hours. And stay to the bitter end, insist. They'd be like, no, sit down. No, it's cool. I want to help you guys. It'll make it easier for everyone. Um, but then the restaurant closed, so I, could, I couldn't work there. Uh, so they, um, they had a new restaurant in the east side, Campanile Roma, and uh, another restaurant that sadly didn't last very long, Fat Dragon in the downtown east side. And they said, well, you might be considered for a cook position but you got all this coffee experience and we need a brunch barista or a brunch bartender for Roma are you interested and so so I took the job at Roma and uh ended up working for that company for almost eight years I believe I was there sitting at that bar on the very first brunch shift that <laughs> That you had. Oh, was that? Oh, was that my first? Oh, that. Probably, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Oh man, I was probably I was probably shaking so hard. Balancing. Super your, nervous. Balancing your time between putting some salads into a bowl, then going over it like it was. You know, you had three rolls at that. Well, uh, that's at the same time there. 
Yeah, they said it was brunch barista, but yeah. that that job had a name. It was we called it bar manger. It was that was the thing that that sold me on it was you were you were a cook on the line. Uh, you didn't have to do much prep, but you were working service as the bar manger cook, and you were also the bartender, and kind of expected to be the server's assistant, which I didn't understand for maybe the first year and a bit because uh, there was a lot to do on the station, but uh yeah i ended up uh ended up working there and doing that for for two and a half years making salads and uh pouring wine making cocktails and that just kind of you know slowly worked on cocktails more and more they were kind of a side hobby uh at home and uh yeah, kind of figured I, I I liked that side of things too. The bartending was was kind of an extension of of working as a barista. Uh, you know, instead of making coffee, you're making Manhattan's. Gotcha. So the next natural, or I guess the, the steps were coffee, then the food came into play, and then you're adding with cocktails next. That was definitely yeah. That was the, you know, we were you know using the kind of the net, the industry network connections um of of working in the restaurant you get you start hanging out at cocktail bars and there was some awfully good bars uh emerging in vancouver at that point for cocktails places like the poorhouse and the diamonds and trying to think you know places like wildebeest came into play pretty soon shangri-la where uh, jay jones was for a little while uh markets when it opens and uh what else was good there was you were starting to see some really good cocktails in the city and so i was sitting at bars watching them seeing how they did it and then uh trying to replicate that at my little you know four seat bar out on Hastings and Nanaimo and uh that was definitely the next kind of obsession you could you know start focusing on spirits and it was an Italian restaurant so you know get excited about things that were starting to come in like the new vermouths and Amaro and it all thematically worked for the restaurant mm -hmm. so um started started increasing increasing the uh the, the spirit sales, I guess. And then pouring wine alongside that too. Like Tom Doughty was, was writing the list. One of the owners of the Campagnola group um, was writing really cool regional Italian wine lists, with really good value. And so we were pouring things like, you know, really good Rossi de Montalcino and uh, fun, just, wines you know that you i hadn't really seen before so you were like that price immersing yourself into the wine world as this was happening i think so i mean i might be getting some things crossed I, I don't think i initially saw wine as as the as like a next step i i did really enjoy wine i you know a few years before at ubc i was the president of the the UBC wine tasting club uh, for a year and had, had worked with them and had taken UBC wine science for a semester, which was a good formative course. So I, I had been interested in it and, you know, knew 
had a good rudimentary uh, base level of interest. Um, so where did that really take but, off then as you're developing and building up this cocktail prowess, which you became like really famous for across Vancouver? And then <laughs> how did, where did the wine enter or where did the wine start to, to match that same level of expertise as the cocktail and the food and the coffee up to that point? Well, I was trying to study it. I, I, I think I've always viewed wine as, as academically interesting um, because there's so much to know. It's like in, in an infinitely deep subject. And so I had, you know, like copies of the, the World Atlas of Wine and I'd go to a coffee shop and would, you know, read about Burgundy and, and Champagne or whatnot and um, started hanging out. Uh, actually, this all would have been about the same time while well, started hanging out with you and uh, uh, going up to a, a wine shop after shifts at, at Elysian. So I would, I, you know, this is going back a little bit but uh, buying bottles, you know, every couple nights of wine and just trying, doing the same thing, like what I was talking about, where you, you're like, oh, let's find something better, something new. Try to find what's, what's, the, what's the best flavor, what's the, what's the cool, or um, what do I think tastes good? And you go to, you know, at that point, my store was Firefly, where I had some, I made friends with the people working there. And, uh, you know, get a bottle and taste it. And it, it got me thinking about how big the wine world is. And uh, um, you remember, Peter, any of the bottles or the experiences that really accelerated that? Are there any standouts that like <laughs> leap from? There was one, man. Yeah, there's a couple. Uh, I remember tasting, uh, I, I kind of, not lied, but I think the the tasting group at Firefly that they had, they're there's some they're doing their W set diplomas and uh a few people there. Um most of them don't live, none of them live in Vancouver anymore, I don't think. Uh and one of them brought a 1996 Ramirez de Ganuza uh Rioja to the group. And I remember I had never tasted, never really tasted a wine that that old from somewhere like that before and thought it was pretty special. Um, I remember, uh, you know, and this is funny because it was, it would have been at, at your place, a very early bottle of uh, Thierry Puzalat, Puzalat Bonhomme and Kobe Trust. Mm. Yes. That got opened. That was a, that was an eye opener for a couple, couple reasons. You know, where you start to see these wines, uh, certain wines that would pop pop into your, your life and be like, okay, cool. There's a lot out there at all kinds of price points and ages that, that, uh, that you know, there's this whole world beyond what you see in restaurants or, or exactly on a, on a wine shop shelf or, or whatever. So got me really, really interested in how the world of wine, um, how, just how big it is and how interesting it can be. Got it. Awesome. And then that yeah. one approximately, would that bring us to the Campagnolo upstairs days? Yeah, approximately. It was over the list and, and create a philosophy and a, a purpose for a small 
rotating list you were doing there? Yeah. So there was, there was, one, there was an opportunity where I realized I might, from my side, I was like, I think, I think I can kind of help out a little more. And I, I have this feeling that I had been, you know, I had met a few wine reps. I had been hanging out at uh, portfolio tastings and that sort of thing. And just because I was really interested, I remember always being asked like, Oh, are you the wine director there? And no, no, I'm not. I'm just, just the, the, the brunch bartender. At that point I had moved on. I was full, I was full time as the bartender and uh, I was just really into it. I like it. I like tasting wine. I like uh, seeing what's out there. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe I can actually do this. And so there was some shift in management and I said, Hey, I know I have no experience with this, but would you be willing to take a chance on letting me help guide the beverage selections at Campagnolo? I think we can kind of steer this in a certain direction and uh, I think I can do it. Um, but I might be crazy. And they, they actually agreed. So um, the owners let me kind of start doing my own thing. And then that led pretty quickly, like six, six months or so to the opportunity where we ended up opening up uh, Campagnolo upstairs, which they essentially, you know, they had a space above Campagnolo, 35 seats or so. And they said, we think this would be a really good cocktail bar um, or a little casual spot. And I thought that was a great idea. So we opened up this small, intimate, classic cocktail bar with a tiny little like 12 bottle wine list of fun things. And it was all just kind of beverage wise. It was what I felt like people should be drinking. Yeah. Amazing. This fun little, fun little microcosm of, you know, a project that really couldn't have, it, there were so many factors that had to be into place for that to exist. Grandfathered licenses, an, an unused space and, and a, a willingness to let me run amok and uh, and then, yeah, just, just running with it. So that was six years of, of pouring all kinds of fun drinks. No kidding. Yeah, just a convergence of so many different things coming together at the right time. You were where you were at in all of the... <laughs> Your, your complete hospitality repertoire at that point to say, look, here's the next expression of it. And what Vancouver got then was a very unique, um, amazing bar that only not everybody knew about. And when everybody, anybody went there, I think there was <laughs> some delight. And uh, there must have been tons of stories from that place, not only the neighborhood it's at, but also it's not not, it's not su it wasn't super well known within, except for the, those that knew about it. Kind of thing. Yeah, and they, that was partially intentional. I mean, and that's another thing that, like, building up a grassroots bar, uh, you know, without, you know, we we weren't trying to shout from the rooftops about, hey, we've got this tiny little cool bar here, like, come on in. It was kind of meant to be a bit of a secret, and because it was attached to so many projects, you know, there wasn't as much of that pressure to get that return on investment immediately. We ran it very lean. It was, it was literally just me for the first while, uh, five nights a week sitting behind the bar or standing behind the bar and hoping people would come up and, uh, they were, you know, after a, a good burger and a, and a drink and, uh, over, you know, over time building up both working on my own, 
hospitality skills and getting better as a, I guess, a maitre d' or a host and, and a bartender and, and, you know, building up relationships with our guests, it, it developed a pretty strong following, I think. Pretty, pretty lucky. But all those factors were like, that. a lot of that is just pure luck. Um, so pretty, pretty fortunate to have had that experience. Incredible. I mean, that is certainly yeah. famous for its that burger as well. Did you have a favorite thing that you used to like to pour with, uh, with that we, burger? Oh, man. I poured, I, for, for wine, I, I poured a lot of Beaujolais mm. up there and then later poured a lot of Lambrusco, uh, which, which was a good pairing. Um, I also always liked my the like house wine which i never really would have said i had a house wine but uh just having some some good quality inexpensive cava was always fun too um had some regulars you know who would who would say oh yeah just a glass of your cheapest bubbles and it was kind of you know it was always always fun um but you know a good sazerac was always always needed and i started collecting amaro too so there was a lot of amaro poured up there that was always fun introducing people to. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And then, then the last year and a half happened. So I think it was at that time you made a, uh, that bar then ended its legacy in, in Vancouver. Yeah. Had to, had to move on, unfortunately. I mean, sadly the, the restaurant had a, had a timeline, but um, uh, very fortunate to join up uh, with, Andrea Carlson from Burdock and Company and her partner, Kevin. Um, they had a spot beside Harvest on Union Street in Chinatown, and uh, they were trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, initially, it was going to be the noodle side from Harvest. They were going to move that over and do that for the daytime. Um, but uh, with the current with the situation in 2020, it didn't make sense to do that. So we kind of came up with the idea of opening up a little wine bar. Um, it's 16 seats right now. <laughs> uh, I think maximum capacity is only 26 anyway. It's about 400 square feet. So uh, doing another little small intimate bar um, made, made sense. So no hood vents, so just small little cold plates. And, or, well, we try and make do. Uh, but yeah, opening up a, a little wine bar in August uh, 2020. So almost a year now. It's almost, almost been a, a year. year. Yeah. Which what is crazy to think putting, about. Uh, putting that list together. Where did you that was fun. It was, you know, now a little more, I guess a little more confident uh, with kind of my vision of what I wanted to do. And Burdock has a long history of, of supporting or putting on pretty innovative natural wine lists. Um, and, you know, they opened up over eight years ago now. So uh, I think the conversation around that, we could talk for hours about that, I'm sure, but about natural wine, I think the conversation is changing a little bit about how and what natural wine is or isn't or what it should be or what it shouldn't be um, on a more serious level, not just whether it should exist or whether it's good or not. We're past that, but trying to figure out, you know, uh, a wine list that incorporates uh, minimal intervention and quality viticulture, which is probably what I'm most interested in, like high quality 
organic uh, or sustainable agriculture and, uh, and really quality winemaking and then just kind of having fun with it. So knowing that it's a small room, I'm, we're always going to have staff myself and maybe one server that will know about the wines. So introducing people to fun wines that they probably have never considered before. Or if they do know a bit about wine, they're going to be psyched for it because there's going to be some, there's always going to be some fun selections that they have either never had or they, they can't always find. So trying to build a little, I think we're probably up to about 20 bottles, constantly changing by one case, rotated out for the next uh, wines and, uh, and just pouring, pouring some fun stuff. Awesome. What's the relationship like with the food there, Peter? Like when you make your selections, is it's the, the main thing, the, the title is Bar Gobo. So do people come for the wine first and then have the snacks as an accompaniment to what you're pouring or in the balance between? Like how, what is most, how do most people use Bar Gobo? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm probably biased, but I, I think most people are coming for wine first, I think. But that's that shifting um, because the food is really good. So um, that that helps, uh, and then trying to get people to kind of understand how it works. Um, in my, I've never really explained it, or, or or I wouldn't use this analogy on a day to day basis. But I think of some of the wine bars I've been lucky enough to visit in in Paris or even uh, some of the spots in New York where uh, there's one particularly in Paris called Odusa Me, and uh, it's very casual, like, like formica tables, like it's chaos. There's, you know, all kinds of people on the street and, uh, you know, the proprietors and a t-shirt behind a bar, it's hot, sweaty, there's no lighting. And, you know, that's not, fully what we're about but i remember the waiter coming to to our table and being like are you hungry do you like to eat food they're like sure and he's like do you want us to just bring you things and i i was panicking in my my poor french and i i we yeah please like sure yeah we like things you know do you like fish do you like cheese yeah sure no problem and he just started bringing up dishes and uh being horrified at how much the bill probably would be and it was like a third of what i thought it was was going to be because it was just a casual spot but um bringing out you know small plates that focus on uh either what's really tasty and fresh or what you get in or or what the uh what the local farms are growing right now and that's really what our kitchen does at gobo you know, we have connections with the farmers through our CSA program and just Andrea's long history with um, local produce. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, we were, Neil, our, our chef, just translates that onto the plate and it, it's really fantastic. So people should be coming for the food and the wine, you know, the wine list I try to build to be versatile to go with that. So um, I, I'm not a, firm believer in like finding perfect pairings for each dish I, I want want a bottle or a couple glasses to be interesting and for people to play around with their own uh to have their own experiences and see what works and what doesn't although ideally it all should work but yes yeah 
Or for those that are coming in for the food, then you get to delight them with some discovery about wine and vice versa. If, if that's the exactly, thing. yeah. Exactly. Awesome. And if you were going out, Peter, like after work's done, you finished early or something for some reason, where else would you be if there was like one glass and one dish around the city? Where would you hop to like end out your night or for just a, a, a luxurious Peter Van Der Reep kind of experience? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, that's a tough question. Where would I go? See, last call has been at 10 o'clock for everywhere for so long the past year. I haven't actually been able to go for a post service. Pretend. <laughs> but yeah, no, no problem. Right now. Well, I mean, in the neighborhood, you go to the you go to the boxcar for a little pint of cider and a fernet, maybe. Oh, yeah. uh, no, no food at the boxcar though. Um, right now, if they were open a little later, or if I could escape, if I went for uh, uh, see whatever they were pouring over at my neighbors at uh, Thank You Pizza. Mm. I really want to try their their burrata pizza because it reminds me of one I've had in Italy. Um, but that that pizza is really good, and they usually have all kinds of fun stuff. They were pouring. Uh, what do we? We picked up a can of Avril Creek Piquette oh, from yeah. them, which um, was shockingly delicious. Um, a nice little summer refresher, uh, but they have all kinds of stuff. They had a magnum of Marto uh, Werner's Vice in the fridge, which if that was open, I would drink a glass of that with a pizza. <laughs> it's so close by too for, for where you're at. Keep it yeah, in. I mean, that's like ultra convenient. Or I'd go, if they were open, I'd go to uh, Popeye, the new, uh, new cocktail bar and behind um, the original Taqueria on Hastings. It's called Chupito. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. They're doing really good cocktails back there. Awesome. Uh, it's in the alleyway, and it's this, like, great little space. And they had a scallop agua chile that I had last week, and it was so good in the heat um, with a mezcal margarita, and that was that was perfect. These yeah. are all the, the top recommendations, Peter. You're, you're always, to me, to my mind... <laughs> The one that will know about something or have discovered something long before other others will have. So anyone listening here, uh, those are the top top recommendations. Those are those are some good ones off the top of my head yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, supporting some good people too. That's always important these days. Very key. Very key. Terrific. Well, they can everyone can come visit you at a at Bargo, but what are the what are the opening hours or the times that you're there? We're open Wednesday through Saturday from four until ten. Okay. Reservation. Mostly patio seating right now. Reservations okay. recommended. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right on. Yeah. Well, before we uh before we end this, Peter, I, I want to uh have part of this conversation really be for some people that are listening that may in the future be interested in the sommelier competition and curious about with you as the most recent title holder, what was the experience of studying and preparing? What did you have to do? What did you put yourself through? What did, what was that like to, to have your performance be at that level? Well, a lot of it is, uh, I mean, in competition, your first step is, is theory. So really nailing your theoretical side. Um, I, you know, What's your preferred way of doing that? There's like flashcards, there's storytelling, 
there is. There yeah, is. I've never been a flashcard guy. Okay. Yeah. I uh, I've tried and I I can't I can't get it's not not my thing. I like I like reading and then I transcribe, try and take notes as I as I'm reading, and using various uh, you know various sources to try and tie it all together. So having things like uh, uh, the resources on guild some have been very uh, valuable so they kind of get at the core of what's important some books can kind of lead you down the wrong path sometime I, I feel like and they can become outdated very quickly um, so having that as a current source and then having things like the world atlas of wine and the oxford companion of wine out when you're studying a subject like if you're you know today i'm going to study mosul um riesling or or the wines of the mosul you pull out uh the world atlas and guild some produce or um either producer sites or uh, national organization sites you just kind of pull it out you get notebooks and uh write things down there's some systems that certain people use and i'm trying to become more systematic in my studying but a lot of it is just attacking the material um, from an inquisitive aspect and trying to figure out what's what's actually important. And it's hard to boil that down. I can, because I haven't done a lot of formal wine study in my life, I often get stuck in studying just what I find interesting. And for a competition, you need to be really aware of things that you might not find interesting. I won't, I won't slander any wine areas that I tend not to tend not to study about or not, not focus on, but you know, you need to be, you need to have an open mind and like remind yourself that certain parts of the world exist and produce really good quality wine and come back to it and, and, uh, and read all the time. Subscriptions to magazines help too, because they force you to read little blips um, of, of, or, you know, profiles of wineries and areas that you might just not think about, and it allows you to stay current. So decanter, wine and spirits, uh, noble rot, a little more literary for noble rot, but mm. now if you want to go further in competition, you need to know French. So subscribe to La Revue du Vin de France and uh, try to make sense of it. Pronunciation mm. sounding very good. Oh, merci beaucoup. Uh, le, le Duolingo est essentiel. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that goes. That's the other thing. Duolingo premium. It's great. <laughs> right on. Oh, well, yeah. For anyone listening, we are enjoying a scorching afternoon today on a Sunday afternoon. And what would be or what, what wine wise would you say hey, hey if we were to refresh with something right now which i think is pretty critical what uh what would you want to pour <laughs> right, right now i uh and i i've long been an advocate for what i've heard recently described as the umlaut wines uh rieslings and whatnot from austria and germany um but today today i mean every day is a cabinet riesling day but uh today is very much a cabinet Riesling day. A little bit of sweetness, lots of acidity. I've got a bottle of, what is it? The uh, 
Michel Felice, uh, uh, Trier, the, the the other holder, the the Villa Friedrich Wilhelm Gymnasium uh, Schertzhoff Burger Cabinet Riesling in the fridge right now, and I think it'll be opened in a few hours because maybe right now I don't know. It reminds me of those times we went to pitch and putt at Queen Elizabeth Park and would fill the backpack with like three or four bottles of German Riesling and play two rounds. German Riesling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, spark, sparkling Rebola Giala. You brought uh, a bottle of that one time. Yeah, that was yeah. awesome. See, that was like, why do I remember that? That was like eight years ago. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, <laughs> so it would have been a delicious bottle. Like that was like 11 a.m. on a Wednesday, Wednesday late morning or something. Yeah. I remember those times. The course was empty <laughs> virtually. Yeah. Yeah, just just us and other uh, other hospitality industry. Uh, yeah, yeah. G- golfers, not degenerates. Golfers, golfers. <laughs> well, we would be doing before shifts. That's right, or on days off in the middle of the week. Yeah, those are only days off for me. Always professional. Always professional. Absolutely. So, <laughs> well, it might be time for another. I mean, I imagine the pitch and putt courses are full these days. I can attest to that, having gone to one yeah. today. Waited an hour to. Off oh wow yeah, wow central park but um yes we're due for another visit for one of those and peter i'm clear that we could have continued this conversation in many different directions probably have a part two one day would love to get into i mean you just from what i know of you as an incredible cook i i just love having those conversations of the worlds coming together and the philosophies of pairing and constructing even simple meals right. for, for yourself. So that's all topics for a possible future conversation. Sure, but um, this was really great to catch up. I'm so stoked. And I know the city is stoked about this, this new project. I guess it's not too new anymore, but this project that you're, you're taking on right now. In my yeah, it's, I've been, it's fun. It's been incredible for, for food and wine. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. And, uh, and that's it, man. Thank you cool. for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Sorry for rambling. No, it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. Hopefully I, uh, it wasn't, uh, yeah, the old deep history of Peter Vandery. Oh, God. The stories, the stories are so exciting. And I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but what you mentioned about uh, what Alistair said to you at Elysian. Yeah. Like the yeah. difference that just one thing that one person can say can yep. completely alter a career trajectory or a decision or yep. a, a timeliness to it yeah yeah and it really was like i initially was taken aback by it but you know now it's like like whoa that that legitimately totally changed the path of of everything because i don't think i would have been in vancouver still and mm. yeah yeah it's pretty okay. pretty crazy yeah now we're we're kind of like the the torch bearers of this generation to say who who we pass along those words of confidence to that right. might for somebody else just shift their just the way that yep. their whole career is occurring at the time. Like, man, you go you do that do that thing next. Yeah, you want to do this, just do it. Do it. Make yeah. it happen. Yeah. All right, that's that's a good model to finish off. Just do it. Perfect. Make it that. Yeah. <laughs> not not trademarked. <laughs> Shout out to Nike. <laughs> awesome, right, man. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, pleasure. We'll catch up soon as well. Yeah, sounds good. Right on. Take it easy. Very well, sir. Thanks for listening. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of SOMCAST, produced by the BC chapter of the Canadian Association of Professional Sommeliers. Get in touch with us. We welcome your feedback, or if you want to be on the show, or if you have ideas for future shows that would interest you, you can email me, Jason Yamasaki, at jy at jwine.ca. Cheers, and thanks for listening.